Welcome to Manslaughter. That is, welcome to the after show special for the podcast. I'm Sarah Kalen. I'm a criminal behaviorist and homicide investigator. For six episodes, we've told you a story about the 1970 shooting of former policeman Vern Stordock. To share a little about the story behind the story, with me today are some of the creators and participants of the show, including Dorothy Marsick, Vern Stordock's niece. She explored his death for her book with one shot. Welcome, Dorothy. Hi, Sarah. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Dorothy, you spent years thinking about what happened in this house early on the morning of March 1st, 1970. Tell us about your journey. Well, I'd always thought, along with my family, that there'd been some miscarriage of justice. And there were rumors floating around that Suzanne didn't actually pull the trigger that night. And we always wondered why she only spent 11 months in a hospital after confessing to a murder. And so Shannon and I talked a lot about this, and I would say for 10 years, we kept trying to figure out what happened to Suzanne and her family. We looked everywhere, and this was before the internet. I traveled a lot. Every city I'd be doing a consulting or workshop in, I'd find a phone book, and I'd look for David Briggs, Suzanne Stordock, Donna Briggs, to try to find any of them, not realizing that uh, most of them had changed their names. So it wasn't until the internet came and Shannon found on Find a Grave, the grave of Daniel Stordock, Suzanne's youngest son, the one that my uncle had adopted. And from there, she was able to piece together where they were and what their names were. So I went to Tennessee against the uh, protests of Shannon, who said, you know, somebody in that house murdered my father. And my friends who said, you can't go to Tennessee, it's dangerous. But I had to go. I wanted to know the truth. I, I wanted to know, really, in the beginning, just who murdered my uncle. And I went there, and of course, they didn't just come out and tell me what happened that night And when I was there that evening. So I, I got more convinced that I needed to do digging. I got the court documents. I got police reports. And I started piecing things together. Um, not knowing where I was going to find anything. I got death certificates of everybody who had been involved. I got birth certificates. I went to real estate documents. And it was interesting to see who bought what, where, when they sold it. And gradually, a narrative started to emerge for me. But this was three years of 24-7. I mean, I was obsessed with it. So I had to do a lot of self-reflection, and I realized my uncle was really a stable force for me. He always protected me, he was there for me, and he was so much better than my own father, who was violent and used to beat up my mother and brothers and was a, a gambling addict, rageaholic. And Vern was just there, he was calm, he took care of me. and. He was more of a father to me than my own father, and it was a great loss when he was murdered. And I think that, and also I felt so much pain for my cousin Shannon, who'd lost her father, her real father, at such a young age. And the quest for me in the beginning was about finding the truth, standing up for my family, for my uncle Vernie, and for Shannon to really see what happened. It was a quest. <laughs> 
it it was like the holy grail to me. Yeah, I can I can see that and I can understand that. I mean, uh, for you, it was a tremendous loss. It was a real trauma. And so it makes sense that you would have really devoted yourself to finding a way to sort of, if not resolve, at least make peace with that trauma. Um, and, you know, almost two and a half decades of work, I've, I've worked with both survivors and perpetrators of sexual assault. Dorothy, you yourself are a survivor of sexual assault within your family. How did that experience deepen your connection to the other members of your family, including Vern? Well, until I started my own therapy when I was in college, I wasn't really in touch with what was going on. And there, there was a lot of confusion and, you know, why was I reacting this way? But at the same time, because um, I'd been sexually abused for about five years from my older brother, it made me want to really be close to family members who felt safe to me, so where I could feel some safety. Because at that time in my family, I didn't feel safe. When my mother divorced my father and remarried a wonderful man, my stepfather, and that brother went to live with my father, I felt safe in that home. But during those early years, I hadn't. And it took me years of therapy and being in a eight-month-long incest therapy group for a while with 16 other women for me to really be able to heal those wounds and to be able to face what had happened and, and connect it in, into my life. But I think overcoming those helped me to do this search because going on this quest and this search was very difficult Joining us now is Marty Scott, the writer of Manslaughter. Marty, you are a television writer primarily. How did you come to this project? So I came to this project uh, initially to basically turn it into a television show. And by way of background, I started my career as a lawyer. I was a big firm litigator in New York. I worked at Crevasse, Wayne & Moore, Sidley & Austin. So I was used to doing complex cases with a lot of facts. And I was really impressed by the, the research and the years and the, and the detail that, that Dorothy did in putting together this project. And the, the second thing that drew me in, because I also then later became a television writer, was all the drama. And as I started reading the story, it starts out as a very, it seemed like a very simple story about a cold case, 50-year-old cold case, and who shot her uncle. But I quickly realized it was a lot bigger than that, that there were really three parts to the story. The first, of course, is the actual murder in 1970, which we detail in the podcast. But there was also the, Dorothy's investigation, you know, her going to meet Suzanne, to meet the woman who, you know, the self-confessed killer of her uncle. And the fact that she, the first time she told me that she went to Tennessee, to visit Suzanne with her family there, knowing that David was there, 
knowing that Suzanne was there and one of them obviously pulled the trigger, I was just blown away by her courage and, and also just what it must have been like to be sitting there. Um, and another part of that storyline, too, which really I find very compelling is the fact that Dorothy knew all of these people. She was, she, there was a period of her life where she was close with Suzanne and close with her children when she used to visit, you know, the big, that grand house in Oregon. Um, so the fact that there were a lot of family connections in this piece really made it compelling to me. And the final piece of the puzzle which is really one of the central questions of the podcast is who exactly is Suzanne? And, you know, what, what was interesting as, as, and as we first discussed making a television show, it occurred to us, this really is a podcast. We really need to flesh it out more and, and get more into the details. And one of the great uh, positives of that was the fact that we got to hear from Suzanne's daughter, Donna, who shared a whole portion of Suzanne's life that was frankly fascinating that after basically after the death of her husband, Vern, her life went up and the fact that she got multiple degrees, you know, got her college degree, got a lot. I think she got a law degree and a PhD at the same time, which as an attorney, I can tell you it's pretty hard to do. You know, law degrees are hard enough to, to get. And then had this final marriage and apparently, you know, by some accounts, was a very well-respected uh, college professor, had a, a, a legal career, was involved with women's rights and domestic violence. And in one of the more shocking reveals, ran for the Minnesota State Legislature. I just, I found that fascinating that Suzanne accomplished all that Yet you still have, you know, Dorothy's investigation and Dorothy's conclusion that, you know, the woman could have been a sociopath. And there's the open question of, of was she? What was her state? And, uh, you know, I thought all of that would be something great just to, to put in a podcast and let people really hear, you know, both sides and, you know, draw their own conclusions. Yeah, Suzanne is certainly a larger-than-life character, um, and there are no shortage of uh, fascinating twists and turns. I've experienced that myself spending time on this project. Um, if you had to pick maybe one moment or one detail about the case overall that, you know, as you've studied it in, in the last months, is there is there one thing that stands out to you as sort of the most shocking, the most compelling, you know, now that now that our listeners have, have probably been along on the journey with us. The fact that David was never treated as a real suspect. I found the, the physical evidence, the blood spatter, the, the choice of the Mauser rifle, um, a very specialized sniper rifle. The fact that it was on the, you know, there were multiple guns in that house you know, the, the idea that Suzanne, who by, by most accounts had no experience with a weapon, would decide to take the German sniper rifle from the top level and somehow find the right ammunition, as opposed to picking up, you know, I believe there was a 22 handgun in the room, 
it just doesn't add up. And then when you combine that with the physical evidence that, you know, the blood, the, the, the brain matter and her hair and the trajectory, that's pretty compelling. And then when you add in, you know, David having, sadly having a lot of problems after the shooting and, you know, according to one of his friends confessing to being the shooter and even, you know, refusing to deny it when his uncle confronted him, you know, I just found it, I found it shocking as an attorney that nobody really gave him a close look. And then there, and there's even the, the really, I thought compelling evidence of the way they behaved the night of the shooting by all the police reports. David is freaking out. He's screaming. He's, he's banging the table. He's clearly very upset. And meanwhile, Suzanne is calmly going about her business, basically setting up her legal defense, you know, calling, repeatedly calling her lawyer, calling all of her friends, saying she did it, she did it, which adds up if she wants, you know, if she wants the light on her. So nobody will take a close look at David. So that to me was the heart of the whole case. And what I thought that, you know, Dorothy really did a great job in, in uncovering those clues and those facts and, and, and showing that, you know, at least in my opinion, it seems like David was the shooter. Yeah. I have to echo that as the um, investigator, uh, you know, on scene, I am also the most struck of the entire thing by the fact that they really never even addressed David as a potential suspect. Um, it, it, that really, it, that stood out to me too. And is sort of the thing that I keep coming back to over and over again was, you know, didn't you even think to talk to him about it a little bit? You know, like at, at what point through the whole process, I know that it happened more quickly than we would, you know, typically expect a murder investigation to go. But I've been on some that, you know, wrapped up pretty quickly because, you know, everything was pretty cut and dry. You're still doing a little more interviewing than this. You're still corroborating the story of what you're getting from the people who are in the building at the time. And it does seem to me that Suzanne's story probably would have crumbled under any scrutiny at all. And then the view should have been turned to David. And, and I, I echo what you said. I was just struck um, by why did nobody even address that as a, as a possibility? I know the whole, the whole investigation. I mean, even another, another big moment was the fact that she got to use, you know, the sheriff's private office, Jack Leslie. You know, can you imagine somebody now confessing to shooting a former police officer and they bring you in and they don't, you know, they don't beat you up. They don't throw you in a cell. They let you sit in the head, the head honcho's office and use the phone, unlimited phone calls like that. That to me was amazing. And I, you know, Obviously, it raised some questions, which we, you know, which we looked at in the podcast. But also, I'm wondering, it's, was it also a sign of the times? It was 1970. All right. Also with us is Molly Peterson, the host and co-writer 
Molly, you are a longtime public radio reporter, so I just have to to gush. Um, I am a giant PBS and NPR nerd, so I've been very excited to get to work with you on this. But that aside, all you know, flattery aside, how does this job compare to your day job, to what you're you're typically doing as a radio journalist? I mean, in some ways, it's really, really different, and in some ways, I, I hope it's connected in the sense that you know, the best version of reporting has a rigorous factual basis, um, has a sense of really getting to know a community and dynamics among people and talking to people. Um, you know, I got to talk to people from Oregon, Wisconsin, and maybe attempt to learn how to say things in Wisconsin correctly and learn about the, you know, community dynamics in 1970, where people went out. I mean, There's nothing more fascinating to me. I've gotten to report in California and Louisiana and the East Coast and other states, you know, just getting to know a community and and reflect that community in a way that the people in the community recognize it. And I also think the you know, the thing that's interesting about journalism is people are really complicated and you're supposed to tell a clear story about what's going on. But with this, I'm hopeful that we are able to reflect the complexity of the people that we, that we spend time with and the complexity of, you know, what their decisions over time reflect about them. I think you really hit the nail on the head there. And I think not just in terms of this podcast and not even just in terms of podcasts across the board, But this sort of renaissance of true crime that we're all living in right now, I think that that interest in the complexity is a really big part of it. And and as true crime has gotten better about diving into those complexities and diving into the gray areas, it has been able to really attract um, a a more critical audience and an, an audience more interested in understanding things on a deeper level. And I think in particular, something that people didn't understand in the old school true crime, when we think of, you know, the way it used to be done versus the the type of complex stories that we're seeing now, and especially in podcasting, is that true crime is primarily a women's consumer genre. And I think part of that is that women, um, you know, have sometimes they're more connected and and more understanding of the trauma that they have experienced or that other people have just purely based on the way society, you know, expects us to, to fill those roles between men and women and how we, we process things like trauma. Do you, do you have a particular connection? Do you, do you see that as something that is personal for you? Um, You know, the women in this story and even, you know, the women who, who um, not entirely, but largely will make up the audience, the, the, the way that trauma sort of informs reporting and, and podcasting. I, I mean, in a couple of different ways. Um, I mean, what you're saying about true crime, I, you know, I was a kid who grew up reading mysteries um, and still do. When I worked on the night, when I worked on the night shift at NPR, there was a mystery bookshop that I started just going to. And uh, one of the novelists I really liked was this guy, Ross McDonald, who writes novels based in Southern California and they're detective novels and the main character is a dude, but, um, it's really his, the, the problems in those novels are problems among family members and problems with people with each other. So that's one thing. And then, 
you know, another thing, we sort of address these issues around domestic violence um, in this podcast. Uh, like Marty, I went to law school. Uh, unlike Marty, I didn't really practice when I was in law school. Um, I worked, though, in a public defender's office. I liked it so much when I started out that they said, okay, well, let's put you in domestic violence court. And so I'm a young woman representing largely men accused of domestic violence. And that was kind of a test. Um, there's a reason why I always think nobody did it. And if they did do it, they have a reason for it. And the test of being a domestic violence court was to see the complexity of these relationships among these people and really try to understand what do we know? What can we prove? How do these relationships among these people devolve into chaos and pain? And, and, and that, you know, we, we, we see some of that here with Suzanne and Vern. Dorothy, you did such extensive research and worked with a lot of experts. What type of experts did you consult and what have you learned along this journey? Well, I consulted two psychiatrists, two nurse practitioner psych unit nurses, and two other mental health experts. And I, I talked to people in law enforcement. I spoke to a former judge in Dane County where the murder occurred. And I talked to a lot of, I talked to real estate agents. I talked to people in uh, county records offices to try to locate records and, and tried to find people that had known some of the principals in the case. So in all that you learned, were there things that you had to leave out? Yes, there was a lot of things that were interesting to me about the insanity plea that was given. And I want to highlight Dr. Ken Robbins, who is one of the top forensic psychiatrists in Wisconsin. I interviewed him three times. He looked over the medical reports, which included two reports from psychiatrists. And even though she was given a um, diagnosis of chronic paranoid schizophrenia, he said there was nothing in the reports that would suggest that this actually was her condition. They even said that they didn't observe her being psychotic. They just believed her when she said she did it. And then Dr. Laura D'Angelo, another psychiatrist I interviewed, she said that she was embarrassed for her profession by reading these psychiatric reports. I found that really interesting as well as somebody, you know, with, with some history um, working in the criminal justice field, because insanity pleas, I mean, I don't know, you know, how many people understand this, but there is a difference between, I mean, there's no such thing as clinical insanity, but what we base an insanity plea on or an insanity defense on in the criminal justice system is based on something that goes back to English common law. Um, uh, and, you know, the, the 19th century called the McNaughton rule. And what it essentially says is that an insanity plea, an insanity defense is only valid if the person is so disconnected from reality that they literally do not know the difference between right and wrong. It does not mean a moment of heated loss of control or even an extensive history of loss of control. So what I found sort of stunning about this was that it, you know, whether or not these psychiatric evaluations were done well, there certainly was nothing that indicated she didn't know the difference between right and wrong. And so that, to me, is the most striking thing about the insanity plea being taken um, almost entirely at face value with no challenge. 
And, and one thing that Dr. Robin said, and also Mark Frankel, who is a former Dane County Circuit Court judge, they both said that the fact that right after the murder, she called the sheriff in his home and confessed to the murder indicates that she understood right from wrong. Because why else would you call a sheriff to say, I shot my husband, if you didn't know it was wrong? The other thing that was interesting to me was looking at the three people that were essentially responsible for this insanity plea that Suzanne got. One was Dr. Lee Roberts, who was the state-appointed psychiatrist, who, according to many people I talked to, including Ken Robbins, was a very respected psychiatrist, buttoned up, straight-laced, church-going, right from wrong, very, this is right, this is wrong. And he lost his medical license later for having sex with patients, which Dr. Robbins said made him question all the other uh, diagnoses he gave for insanity pleas for many, many patients before that happened. And it does call into question his diagnosis. And so that was one person. The second person responsible was the sheriff, Dr. Jack Leslie, who was um, probably, the, as Mark Frankel, the judge said, the last of the good old boys sheriffs. And he was run out of office two years later on ethical violations. And then the third person was the assistant district attorney, Victor Musalem, who was disbarred some years later for ethical violations. So we have three people who helped to bring about this insanity plea who all had some problem with ethics and with how you describe the truth. Something that I noticed and really liked about this story was the way you told it with twists and turns and false leads, these red herrings. So let's talk quickly about some of these. Um, Sheriff Jack Leslie. Well, look, as a writer, any time you can, you can just, you know, move the, star, the story hard right or hard left, it's just great for the drama. And Sheriff Jack Leslie was one of my favorite characters. And as Dorothy just mentioned, he, he, he seems to be a bit, of, a bit of an infamous character. And then there's so many odd things that happen. He knew he had a prior relationship with Vern. He apparently knew Suzanne. Suzanne had his home number. Suzanne literally calls him and he takes the call while he's in bed with his wife. And then, as I said earlier, suddenly Suzanne has VIP status with Jack Leslie. And, you know, whether, whether or not anything inappropriate happened, whether or not, you know, and I think his office, correct me if I'm wrong, they were the ones that gave the okay for Suzanne to be transferred to the mental health facility prior to the arraignment, which turned out to be the, the fatal blow to the state's entire first degree murder case. And, you know, that's what the, the district attorney said at that hearing to the judge, like the second they sent her to those other doctors, her own doctor, who then immediately determined she had had a psychotic break they felt that was just too much for them to overcome. And I know when we were going through the police reports, um, the, the judge had said who authorized this to the attorney general, but in the police reports, it was Jack Leslie's office. I thought another interesting storyline that we kind of touched on was the whole issue of drugs. 
you know, Vern, as as we discussed, this guy was a lifetime narcotics expert, narcotics officer. He served in Osaka, Japan, which, as Molly pointed out, literally when you're dealing with drugs and crime in Osaka, Japan in the 50s, you're dealing with the Yakuza. You know, the guys with tattoos who do cut off their fingers, you know, to atone for a mistake. So he he dealt with really hard characters. And, you know, the discovery that there was a briefcase in the house, which I know we inventoried in uh, one of the episodes, that kind of shocked me and shocked all of us, you know, pretty much had every drug you could think of in there. And even though, you know, at the time, uh, Vern was working for the, uh, I believe he was working for the medical examiner's board. He apparently used these uh, drugs as samples in presentations. The fact that it's 1970, you know, the height of drug culture and David's a 17 year old boy. You know, I thought for a moment really raised the possibility that could this have been over drugs? You know, and I and I thought, you know, it's something that the audience should at least be allowed just to speculate on. Like, I don't I don't think that was the case. There's real no evidence. But I thought, you know, there's a lot of interesting facts in this case that presented so many possibilities. And um, I know when I would discuss this with Molly, we would often refer to the house. That was a house of chaos that night in 1970. There's a lot going on. And I thought it was really fun and interesting just to share that uh, with the audience. Yeah, I agree with that. It's, I mean, I do certainly agree with the assessment that it was a house of chaos. There's no doubt about that, but I did, I was sort of amused when you guys presented me with the, with the drug briefcase and it was this kind of dun, dun, dun. And when I read the, um, the, the, the crime scene reports and the inventory done by the investigators at the scene, it immediately jumped out at me as something I would have seen in a training class. And so it's, you know, I sort of chuckle that that's um, something that for me was not, you know, at all suspicious. But sometimes I forget that, the you know, life in the criminal justice system or in law enforcement is really very different than the rest of the world. And I, I still, you know, all these years since I left patrol, I still find myself using um, lingo. And then I feel like an idiot because I realize nobody knows what that means. Um, so I, I mean, I agree. I can see from the outside why the drug briefcase would seem so suspicious and particularly with, like you said, a 17 year old kid who was, you know, it's 1970. Um, and you know, also with another family member. but as soon as I saw the way it was framed, it was pretty clear to me. It was just part of his work with, with the AG's office. But I did find, you know, like everybody else, um, the whole Yakuza thing is just fascinating. And, you know, I, like we said, 80% of, of homicides roughly are, are at the hands of somebody that the victim knows. But when somebody has been involved in work like that, it, you, can't, you can't ignore it out of the gate. I agree. And, and especially one of my rules is anytime you can bring a Yakuza into the podcast, you have to bring them in. I was very committed to that. I couldn't agree more. At the end of the day, I'm a true crime consumer as well, and I would have been disappointed if you didn't. Exactly.
I'd also like to bring up my my favorite twist in this piece, which I didn't see coming when I first got involved in the story, was the fact that after we established, I believe we established that David could have been the killer and Dorothy, you know, does the deep dive to Tennessee to, to meet all of them, to confront them. She develops this relationship with David and it gets to the point where, you know, at least on David's side, it seems to be turning romantic. And I thought that was just fascinating to, to really show and the fact that Dorothy even speaks about how she felt a real closeness with him to such a degree that in her heart, she, she was able, I believe, to forgive him at the end. I thought was really touching and, and, and powerful. And then, of course, you close it out with the final twist that, you know, three days after David called Dorothy and in, and in Dorothy's opinion was about to come clean and tell her, everything that happened, he's dead. And, you know, I always thought that was going to be, you know, the bookends of, of this whole podcast. And obviously the fact then that Suzanne died afterwards, just it gave everything a natural structure. But as far as the David thing, I don't think that was anything I ever expected to happen when I first started reading about the case. And, you know, you start learning that David could be the killer. Yeah, well, I, I think it kind of circles back in a little bit because if, you know, if David was the killer, he was still a child. It was likely done either because he believed his mother was in danger or because his mother was controlling him. And no matter how you frame that, this is um, still a child with, you know, not a fully developed frontal lobe and, and understanding of consequences and, and, and decision making abilities. And in the same way that Vern had extended such kindness to Dorothy and been a port in her storm with a tumultuous childhood, you know, David probably saw Dorothy in much the same way as this kind of, um, you know, comfortable figure. And, it, you know, when he was a kid, maybe he would have interpreted that as a, a kindly family member, an aunt, a, you know, a, a place of, of respite. But as an adult, sometimes those feelings can get bound up and it's not terribly surprising that they that, you know, perhaps they took on sort of a romantic leaning for him. I think at the end of the day, though, it just speaks to Dorothy's kindness. And and ultimately, like you said, um, it's certainly at least movement towards forgiveness. And I think that that is that's all that any of us can can hope for. And at least, you know, in those, in those final days, he had, he had some peace knowing that, that Dorothy's kindness continued for him. No, I agree. And, and, and one of the, you know, one of the saddest parts about doing this whole project was just seeing how, you know, there's so much trauma and so much sadness in this story, especially as we examine all the various family members and marriages and David's is just tragic. I mean, the way all his friends, apparently he was a happy, joyous person prior to 1970. Then every story afterwards, it's just him unraveling. Um, so, you know, I thought that was just something that really, you know, I thought really touched me and, and you know, was something we had to share. Yeah, I agree. And I'm, I'm glad you did. And I hope that that gives Dorothy some comfort as well. 
Yes, it, it does give me comfort. I, I knew David when I was in college. He was a couple years younger than me. He was my cousin. And, you know, when we reconnected 40 some years later, we still called each other cousin. We developed a closeness. I always felt like because he, according to um, most of the reports I got from his friends, and I was just re-listening to some of the interviews last night, uh, they talked about a lot of positive things that David and Vern did together and um, and how Vern took care of him and David looked up to him. And I felt that reconnecting with me was a way that he was also reconnecting with Vern. And likewise, my connecting with him, I felt close to Vern again, too. And and I miss both of them. So, Dorothy, you know, this this podcast, the real recurring theme has been family. Do you have a current relationship with Donna? And, you know, on that same note, your relationship with Suzanne obviously changed over time. Yes, I, I do have a connection with Donna right now. We reconnected when I started this journey in 2014. She was always very kind to me. She was helpful. She interceded at times when, for example, she mentioned to me that she'd found my uncle's wallet. And Shannon got nothing when my uncle died, not a penny, not a piece of paper, not a picture. So Donna was honoring her mother's wishes. She, she didn't turn those over. But during this past year, after COVID started, Donna contacted me and asked if we wanted my uncle's wallet, some of his police gear, and some furniture. So I arranged, I mean, in the middle of COVID, you can't imagine how hard it is to get something moved from Tennessee to the state of Oregon <laughs> with just a few items. But I, I organized it, and it took Shannon about a month to open, and she found that in her father's wallet was a picture of Shannon that he carried all the time. Um, and it was very moving, and I was so appreciative to Donna. She said she was following her Yahweh, and she wanted to make him happy, and I was very touched by that. I think your fear absolutely um, seems logical and, and reasonable, and I think, you know, as much as we've explored this, obviously because it's so long ago and because there were these sort of different perspectives, we may never really have a complete answer, but I think that the thing we can all take away from this, and I, and I hope that people who are listening take this away, and I hope that you are able to, Dorothy, and, and I hope if Donna ever listens that she is able to, that, you know, trauma is, is so damaging, and it, it goes through generations, and I think that the real key to it is talking about it and sharing it and allowing others to to feel recognized and, and healed from that, even if they're just sitting in their room or sitting in the car on the way to work and, and listening. And I'm so grateful to you for sharing this story and for sharing, you know, honestly, your trauma and your journey to, to try and mend from it and, and your family's story. And I hope that this is a conversation that, that we're launching here that will continue and that, you know, like at that book reading that you had that 
somebody will walk away from this and do some healing in their own life that makes their own life better. I'm so grateful to you for sharing this. Thank you. And I, I want to say that I say prayers for Donna and David and Suzanne. Dorothy, Molly, Marty, everybody on the team, thank you so much for this. Um, I'm really grateful to have been able to be a part of it. Thank you for bringing me in. And, um, you know, I hope, I hope we continue these conversations. Thanks, Sarah. Thank you so much, Sarah. Thank you, Sarah. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Manslaughter is produced by Bill Franz Blau, who also supervised the music. Marty Scott is the writer. Dorothy Marsick is the co-host and author of the book With One Shot. Executive producers are Bill Franz Blau, Dorothy Marsick, Marty Scott, and Molly Peterson. Gregory T. Smith and the Oregon Historical Society provided research. Sarah Kalin is a forensic consultant. Shannon Stordock-Hecht is a story consultant. Actors who recreated voices include Jacob Behrens, Charlie Ray, Jeff Wisniewski, Dan Fishman, Tamara Erickson, Kirsten Rodow, Robert Smythe, Steve Travis, Gary Berg, Brady Gonsalves, Buck Scherner, and Chris Sapienza. Nick Cortides is the sound designer and engineer. Martine Cadillo provided original music scoring and engineering. Additional engineering by Sergio Enriquez at Wondery. Tony Bruno produced and arranged songs that Danielle Harris sang. For the music, special thanks to Clearcut Incorporated, John Fry and Barb Hall, Warner Chapel Music, Sony ATV Music, Spirit Music, Abco Music, Fabulous Music, Round Hill, Carlin, BMG, and all the amazing people at Wondery. I'm your host and co-writer, Molly Peterson. Mm-hmm.